If you would, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. And following the reading of scripture, we will sing the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. John 1, verse 9. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his, that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only begotten who is at the Father's side has made him known. And God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Let's bow, please, for a moment of prayer. Father in heaven, as we come to consider more about our Savior Jesus Christ, I pray that you will help us to understand your truth and your word, that it might be clear to us and that we might love him more and more and understand all that he has done on our behalf. And we pray, O Father, for you to be glorified through it all. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. The Heidelberg Catechism in earlier questions labored very diligently to make the point that the only mediator of God's people, the uh, the necessary mediator of God's people had to be true God and true man. And so there was a union in one person of both the Godhead and the manhood. And so as we've come to this section that's taking us through the Apostles' Creed and the different elements covering God the Father, now covering God the Son, and then in time, God the Holy Spirit, We've been looking at these particular Lord's Days, the two that I did last week and the two I'm doing today, and they're focusing on the person of Christ. Uh, Typically, when we think of the work of our Redeemer, we think about the person of Christ and then the work of Christ, and the, the questions that will follow will be focused on the work of Jesus Christ. But in these four Lord's Days, we have an emphasis on his person. Uh, So last week, Lord's Day 11, uh, was on Jesus. He is our Savior. And Lord's Day 12, he is Christ the Anointed to be our prophet, priest, and king. And today, the two that we're looking at today uh, focus particularly on the deity of Jesus Christ and his humanity. 
How is it that we, we, we know he is God and yet how did God become man? <clears throat> and um, these things are put together in these questions and answers that we're going to be looking at today. And so we begin with the concept and the idea, the thought of the deity of Christ with the terminology of the only begotten Son of God. So question 33, why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God since we are also children of God? And the answer, because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God. And then the second half is our sonship. There's a contrast between Jesus' sonship and our sonship. We're both, in that sense, sons and sons of God, children of God, sons and daughters of God. But there's a difference, a distinction. Uh, he's the eternal and the natural Son of God. And so looking at God's sonship or Jesus' sonship, uh, I want to take up the phrase uh, that's in the question and answer and that I used in my Bible, in the reading of the scripture that I read is he's the only begotten son of God. And it's important description, an important phrase, particularly as it focuses on the, the nature of his sonship and the nature of his being. <clears throat> and uh, in your translations, you will sometimes often see it translated something like one and only or only son rather than only begotten. Does that matter? Well, the Greek word behind uh, only begotten is the word monogenes. And to make you Greek scholars, you split that in half and it's two words, mono meaning only or one, Gnes coming from the Greek word that means begotten. And it is the word that you typically see in the genealogies that so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. <clears throat> and we think in that genealogy, of course, it's a father and there's the beginning of a son or daughter and the beginning of another son or daughter. And heretics certainly have misused this idea, but that's not what's being communicated here. When it says he's the only begotten son of God, it's stressing and underscoring a relationship. Now, the, the, the translation one and only uh, or only son is that beginning roughly around the first of the 20th century, scholars said, no, that second Greek word, genes, really is from the word that means kind. <clears throat> and so you have, uh, he's the only kind. And one and only, and it does communicate a truth. Jesus is certainly unique uh, in his sonship. He's certainly the unique son of God. There is none like him. But we miss something really important when we give up the older understanding or the older translation, which was present for centuries, it's that we not only see the uniqueness of Jesus <coughs> as the Son of God, but we see the relationship that there is between uh, Jesus and the Father. And that's, the, that's an important thing. My throat's getting dry. I don't have a cough, but I'm going to put a cough drop in <coughs> to help me 
keep liquid going. I'm not sick, I promise you. And um, you can't have COVID two weeks later, can you? No, I don't think so. So my apologies for that. But the truth in only begotten is the truth of the eternal generation of the son, his eternal relationship with the father. One of the things the, the church fought and died for in the early centuries of the church was to define and defend the teaching of the Bible on the triune God. That is, there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we have one of our vows for membership that reflects on this, and I want to read that for you. Do you believe in one living and true God, and to whom eternally there are three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? who are the same in being and equal in power and glory. And then the rest of it is in that Jesus Christ is God the Son come in the flesh. That's the next part of what we'll talk about. But there's one living and true God. Uh, They exist in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of the persons is equal in being, power, and glory. And the understanding and the definition and defense of the Trinity that the church <clears throat> made was that the Father begets the Son and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's not defining a status as though one's more important than another. It's defining a relationship. The natural divine relationship within the Trinity as we un- understand being taught uh, in the Holy Scriptures. And so when the Bible talks of Jesus being the only begotten Son, it's not saying that there was a time when Jesus was not. It's not in any way dev- denying the eternal deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. What it's trying to explain is the eternal relationship that exists between the Father and the Son and then the Holy Spirit. It's that relationship. Begotten, we put it with, you know, the human relationship between parents and children. It's used in the divine sense of that relationship, not as a day of beginning, but a description of the relationship. So in Psalm 2, when, it's, when God says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, he's not saying there was a day when Jesus began. It's a statement of the relationship that exists. And contrary to the opposition of the nations, I want you to know uh, I have my son exalted on my holy hill. And the relationship between the father and the son and his eternal deity. Let me read a paragraph. This hopefully explains what I'm trying to say. The sonship of Jesus Christ then is different from ours in that we become children of God, whereas Jesus has always been God's son. Jesus was not made the son of God at his incarnation, as if some new title or identity was conferred upon him. The Son of God was the Son of God even before creation. His sonship is eternal, ours is not. That's the difference. 
By nature, we are not God's children, whereas Christ is by nature the Son of God. And so by changing the translation to one and only, one and only, we may highlight a particular point of his uniqueness, but we're missing that for which the church is bled and died, a description of the relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. And so you would be well served when you read one and only as you're reading your Bibles to at least in mentally put in there, he's the only begotten son. He's he's eternally exists as the son. There's an eternal glory in the triune God that we need to hold fast to. And so it's the the deity of Christ that this question is trying to underscore. But in contrast, what about our sonship? How do we become children of God? How do we become sons and daughter of God? Ours is by adoption. And Paul said, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. <clears throat> On a very human level, we have parents here, And you know of other parents who have adopted children and natural children, but they're equally children. And in a glorious and wonderful statement, Jesus owns us as his children, as his brothers and sisters. In Hebrews 2, it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. It's an amazing thing. He's the son by nature. We're the sons and daughters by adoption. And yet he loves us and welcomes us. And that John 1 passage helps us to see this distinction. In John 1, 14 and John 1, 18, Jesus is the only begotten son. But in those verses 10 through 13, it's saying, He came to the world and the world didn't know him. He came to his own and his own didn't receive him. But whoever receives him, to to those who believe in his name, he gives the right, the adopted right to become children of God. And that's the great privilege you and I have to be God's children. So there's the distinction between Jesus' sonship and ours though there's a a wonderful fellowship between them. But he's the divine son, we're adopted children. And we have that great privilege. The uh, other aspect of Jesus' character as God in in, in question 34, why do you call him Lord? Uh, He is, as God and as God's son, our Lord. And he has authority over us he has power over us. He has, uh, we have a responsibility to him. We have uh, a tendency to, we have a tendency to kind of not want anybody to be a boss over me, to be the captain of our fate and the master of our souls. And Jesus is Lord over us. And it, this question and answer explains it. Zechariah or Sinus who wrote this catechism, he says, 
Jesus has the right to be our Lord. There are four things, four reasons why he has the right to be our Lord. One is by right of creation. He, he created us. So therefore, he, we belong to him. In that sense, he has ownership over us. By the right of redemption, he saved us. Uh, and by right of that, salvage, that saving work, he purchased us by his own blood. And that purchase price means we belong to him. By reason of preservation, it's he alone who keeps us and cares for us and keeps us along the way. And so therefore he has a right to direct our path. And then the fourth reason is because of God's appointment. God said he is our Lord. The father said he is our Lord. And therefore we have a right. We have we have a responsibility to follow him as our king and our Lord. The price that he paid for us was his own precious blood. So even if we, humanly speaking, resented having to obey, knowing the price of our redemption, why would we not want to? We owe him everything. And so we want to obey him and love to obey him. So that's the reflection on the deity of Christ. <clears throat> now, the, the, the next two questions in Lord's Day 14 is essentially how did the God, how did the divine God become man? How did Christ, the Son of God, become man? And the answer is through the, the virgin birth. Uh, verse Question 35, what is the meaning of the words, he was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary? That, that God's eternal Son, who is and continues to be true and eternal God, took upon him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, <clears throat> by the operation of the Holy Ghost, that he might also be the true seed of David, like unto his brothers in all things except sin. The virgin birth is an extremely important doctrine. And it's taught clearly in Scripture. If you read Matthew, uh, the first chapter, and if you read Luke, the first two chapters, <clears throat> you see how clearly the uh, truth of Jesus Christ's virgin birth is there. And yet it's one of those doctrines that has become a battleground, particularly early in the 20th century in the battle between the modernists and the fundamentalists. The, the doctrine of the virgin birth was considered one that could be jettisoned and not kept as important. But it's an extremely important doctrine and truth uh, as because the Bible teaches us uh, that a couple of the objections why some think it's not important or we shouldn't believe it. Uh, one is the uh, referring to the prophecy in Matthew in Isaiah seven fourteen. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. You'll call him Emmanuel, meaning God with us. 
And uh, the argument is made, well, that word in Isaiah 714, the Greek, the Hebrew word Alma just means young woman. It doesn't mean virgin. And the answers to that are, um, on the one hand, yes, that word is a little more general word for young woman than the specific Hebrew word for virgin. But of the nine times that word is used in the Old Testament, in every single case, it means virgin. So you're arguing against the whole entire usage of it in the Old Testament. Another answer to that particular objection is that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, prepared two or three centuries before Christ, translates that Hebrew word with the Greek word parthenos, which means only virgin. So the objections to it on those two points um, don't stand. Another objection to it is that, well, it's just a borrowing from pagan mythology. In certain pagan myths, you'll find a hero of some form who was born of a virgin. Well, some of the answers to that are... No such hero exists before uh, the writing of the New Testament. Uh, some, some people who are claimed to be that kind of a hero lived before the New Testament, but no story of theirs was written until after the New Testament. And so what we have, which is pretty typical, it's not that Christianity borrows from paganism. Paganism borrows from Christianity. Um, the, uh, some of the old myths of, of the uh, myth, mythical accounts of the creation of the world, or even of the flood of Noah, they come long after the Bible's account. Maybe not all the Bible has been written by that time, but the stories uh, long existed. And so we have not, not that Christianity borrows from paganism, but that paganism borrows from Christianity. It also would be unthinkable for what at that time in the first century was considered a Jewish sect, which is what Christians were considered in the first century, to use pagan thoughts to try to draw converts. So is the doctrine of the virgin birth important or not for us? What's essential for several reasons. One is it's been the historic understanding of the church. As long ago as the second century, J. Gresham Machen writes about, there can be no doubt that at the close of the second century, the virgin birth of Christ was regarded as absolutely essential part of Christian belief by the Christian church in all parts of the world. It's what the church has always believed. We dare not just kind of discard that thought because we don't, or somebody doesn't like it. The Bible teaches it extremely clearly. It also confirms the 
way in which the union of the Godhead and the man and manhood was was done. How did Christ, the son of God, become man? Our necessary redeemer, the requirement for a mediator is that he be both God and man. Because only as man can he stand in our stead. Only as God can he sustain the weight of God's holy wrath. He has to be in one person, both God and man. Well, how did that come to be? By, the, by God over intending, the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary. So that what was born in her is of God. And one other reason why it's so critically important is that it preserves the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Jesus does not inherit the depravity of original sin in his birth. Because the Holy Spirit's overintending this, <clears throat> we know that sinful dads and moms give birth to sinful boys and girls. David confesses in Psalm 51, in sin, my mother conceived me. Now, he's not saying that his mom committed a sin when she conceived him. That wasn't the point. The point is, from his very conception, he had original sin. He was a sinner. His nature was depraved. His nature was corrupt. Jesus neither had a depraved nature nor he, he never had original sin, nor did he have did commit actual sins. You and I have original sin, and we add insult to injury and commit actual sins. And we need a redeemer. And Jesus becomes our perfect redeemer. He is, as the writer of Hebrews says, a high priest who meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, <clears throat> set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And as that last question we read today, the benefit we get from that is that with his innocence and perfect holiness, he covers in the sight of God my sins in which I was conceived and brought forth. He solves our problem of original sin and he satisfies for all our actual sins. So that he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we could become the righteousness of God in him. It's an essential element of the Christian faith. And it brings together in this one person the Godhead, the only begotten son who became man so that he might obey and suffer in our nature. These are the wonderful truths about the person of Jesus Christ. He's Jesus, your Savior, who will save you from your sin. He's your anointed one to be your prophet, priest, and king. He is the eternal Son of God, the only begotten. He is the one who is born of a virgin, holy, harmless, and undefiled. He can meet your need. Embrace this Christ. Uh, this glorious person who came to die in your place, which we'll hear more of in the days ahead. 
embrace and love him with all your heart. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your beloved son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, in your divine counsel and will that he became man, that he might obey and suffer in our nature. Thank you, Father, that in him all our needs could be met. And I pray, Father, that we will, each of us, embrace by faith uh, your precious son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And may you, O Lord, enable us and and help us to, to walk in your ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.